Brother Chairman and our dear brothers and sisters and our Lord Jesus Christ and our dear young people. Yesterday we looked at a very extensive list about the things that our God is. And it's true to say, brothers and sisters, that when we talk about salvation, there's only one thing that's ever going to be saved, and that's God. It's not us, it's God. Because to be, to be saved indicates that it's worth saving. And there's only one thing that is worth saving, and that is God. And it's only to the extent that God is in us that there will any be, ever be any hope of salvation for us. So, brothers and sisters, what we are saying is this, that the great purpose of God is God-manifestation through God-manifestation. And to reinforce that, we only need to go back to the beginning and to ask, well, from what were Adam and Eve offered salvation? From what was there to be saved when they were placed in that garden? Nothing. But the purpose of God did not change because they sinned and brought death into the world. The purpose of God remained the same. He changes not. He is the same yesterday, today and forever. And while the mode of his operation in the presence of men may vary from one given age to another, his purpose does not change. And it has not changed and it will not change. Change And it will be, brethren and sisters, successful. And you, brethren and sisters and young people, are actually going to think this morning that Brother Tony and I have had a little conversation about today and that we colluded to a very large extent. Well, I can assure you that we haven't. And Brother Tony will tell you the same. But it is a remarkable fact that we are going to talk about very much the same things. Because the chapter 2 of James is all about having the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ without respect of persons. And verse 1 goes on to title our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory, which is the Shekinah in the most holy of the tabernacle. And it finishes by talking about the justification of Abram because of his faith and subsequent examples because of their works. And that's going to be the burden of our considerations together. Now, brothers and sisters, to start that off, we are going to say this, that Adam and Eve, because of the way in which they were made, were not going to be inevitable sinners. Sin was a choice for them. Righteousness was a choice for them. But ever since that time, with one exception, everybody has been an inevitable sinner. And that means, brothers and sisters, 
that if Jesus Christ was not an inevitable sinner, and he obviously wasn't, there's got to be a difference. There's got to be a difference. It's not a difference in the stuff of which he was made. It's a difference, brethren and sisters, in the source from which he came. And that source from which he came, brethren and sisters, is a power that can move mountains and make seas and rocks and and hills and everything else that we see on the landscape. And therefore we need to ask this question. In a human frame like ours, even in a human frame like ours, what would it not be capable of doing? And so we are introduced to the vital truth, brethren and sisters, that it was God in him who is reconciling the world unto himself. We are not reconciled to Jesus Christ. We are reconciled to God. And it is God who is in him who is doing that work. And when we were speaking yesterday, brothers and sisters, about verse 13 and 14 and 15 of James chapter 1, (coughs) we didn't say this about those verses, but we're going to say it now with unequivocal truth that those verses cannot apply to Jesus Christ. They cannot apply to Jesus Christ because it's talking about a man who fails and he never failed. It's talking about men, brethren and sisters, with whom is a dichotomy in their very being. And we might parallel it with Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 which Brother Tony has used All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Does that include Jesus Christ? Of course it doesn't. And neither does this verse here. We all follow in the pattern of those verses because every man fails when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And I just want to read, brothers and sisters, what our unity book says about this matter, about Jesus Christ. I'm just going to read a very short paragraph. It was here that Jesus differed from all men. Though born under the hereditary law of mortality, as his mission required, his relation to the Father as Son of God exempted him from the uncontrolled subjection to unrighteousness. I'll read it again, brethren and sisters. It was here that Jesus differed from all men. Though born under the hereditary law of mortality as his mission required, his relation to the Father as the Son of God exempted him from the uncontrolled subjection to unrighteousness. Brethren and sisters, we all inherit an uncontrolled subjection to unrighteousness. And our unity booklet spells it out and it says he wasn't. 
And how else are we ever going to understand, brothers and sisters, a little boy of five in whose mouth there was never any guile and in whose spirit there was never a duplicity? How are we ever going to understand it? We watch the results. The results demand a cause that is at least equal to the results. And that's the only thing we can say about it, brothers and sisters. And when we start to try to grapple with his mind, we try to grapple with something, brothers and sisters, that is too high for us. And it's a little bit like this. That if we had in our midst a university maths professor, the maths professor understands how one plus one operates. But the little infant school child does not understand sines and cosines and tangents. But they're all mathematicians. And that's the relationship, brothers and sisters, of our Lord Jesus Christ with us. All of his puttings to the test were in a field that was commensurate with the position that the Father had in mind for him. And all of ours are in a field that are commensurate with the position the Father has in mind for us. And they are very, very different positions. Because his position demands that ever since he rose to the right hand of the Father, he's had under his fingers, as Brother Tony has told us, angels, principalities and powers have all been subject unto him. And it will even be more extensive when he comes again. And therefore the expectations that his Father had of him are far away and above ours. And that's why he is set out as a different man. Not different because of stuff, not different because of inheritance, but different because of the divine begettal that the eternal spirit began to proceed with a work that no man was going to stop. And no man did stop it, brethren and sisters, because the only man who could stop it always wanted to please his father. And he was always able to maintain that pleasurable attitude before his father in thought, in word and in deed. He's a man, brothers and sisters, who condemns evil thoughts as being defiling. Did he have any? Could he have any? Brothers and sisters, the definition of sin in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 is this, that all have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? And the word to come short means to be deficient in. And all men have been deficient in the glory of God, with one exception. And he is, in James chapter 2, as we read in the very first verse, My brethren, (coughs) have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
the Lord of glory with respect of persons. He is the Lord of glory. Brothers and sisters, come back to John chapter 1 and at verse 14. We know the verse well and it's taken right out of the language of the tabernacle as our brother Tony has been talking to us this morning. In John chapter 1 and verse 14 the word was made flesh and it tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory. Whose glory? We beheld his glory. And what's the glory? The glory is of, as of the only begotten of, you can only expect it, says John, of the only begotten one of the Father. And so, brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ, though a man like us, is a creation not like us because he has not been derived from the same source as we. He's made of the same stuff but he's not derived of the same source. And so therefore, brothers and sisters, we see a man who was asked to perform things that no other man no other man has ever been asked to perform. Adam was asked to be sinless and he failed and he decided the destiny of all of us. The Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam, was asked to decide the destiny of all those who are in him and he's done it. Because while by the obedience of one many were made sinners, by the disobedience of one rather, many were made sinners, by the obedience of one many shall be made righteous. And so now, brothers and sisters, as we look at this man who is styled by James as the Lord of glory, we only have to take our minds back a little into the discussion that our brother Tony led us in this morning to see that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was yet standing. And so we want to take ourselves on a little journey and we're going to begin back in Job chapter 9. And there was a dramatic problem that faced every man of faith in Old Testament times. And the problem was, brethren and sisters, how and when would the most holy place ever be open to man? And so in Job chapter 9 and at verse 2, Job says, chapter 9 and at verse 2, I know it is so of a truth, he's answering the previous speaker, I know it is so of a truth, but how should a man be just with ale. How can a man ever stand in a right relationship with one so high, so holy, so righteous, 
so separate from man on the earth. How is that going to be accomplished? And brethren and sisters, there was perhaps a greater man than even Job who asked the same question and we turn to the second of Samuel chapter 7. <coughs> and our brother Tony has hinted at these matters this morning. In the second of Samuel chapter 7. And we know what's here in second of Samuel chapter 7. And after the promises were given, verse 18 says, Then went King David in and sat before Yahweh and he said, Who am I, O Adonai Yahweh? Just a little aside, brothers and sisters, trace out that title of the deity and see where it is found. It's a little bit of homework that you might do. Who am I, O Adonai Yahweh? And what is my house? He's not talking about a literal building. What is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? And this was yet a small thing in thy sight, O Adonai Yahweh. But thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come. And is this the manner of man, O Adonai Yahweh? Brother Thomas's translation of those last, that last phrase, and is this the order of the ascending Adam, O Adonai Yahweh? David, brethren and sisters and young people, is pleading with his Father in heaven to show him what sort of a man it will be who knocks on the door of the vault of heaven and is open to go in. He says, look, there's a fundamental problem, O God. And the fundamental problem is that I know you are of too holy a disposition than that you can even look upon sin. So if we, if this sort of person is ever going to get into its rightful place so that heaven will be opened, what's the kind of man that's going to do it? I can see he needs to be an ascending man. I can see he needs to get to your right hand. But where's the man that's going to do it? And the great drama, brethren and sisters, of Old Testament times was that it was only by figures and shadows and types that this work of the most excellent and only begotten Son of God was foreshadowed. And David's obviously got a great problem knowing that he's an inevitable sinner and that therefore anybody like him must be automatically barred from entry into the most holy place. No matter what sacrifice he may take in, so far as David could understand things. And therefore, brethren and sisters, the thing that was done by God in Jesus Christ made it all possible. And it made it all possible by God being the Father, by the eternal Spirit being the mechanism, the vehicle by which this would be accomplished. And he began a work by hovering over the womb of Mary. 
a work, brothers and sisters, of which Mary would have been ignorant for some time. She wouldn't have known what was happening. But it happened. And the holy thing that was born was called the Son of God. The Son of God. The only Son of... Adam was not a son. He's a creation. The only Son of God. He's a very special man. He's a very special babe. He's a very special adolescent. And brothers and sisters, that is the man whom God created, as Brother Tony was telling us, like the veil of the temple. This flesh, his flesh, was especially worked on so that God might be in it in the fullest extent of those terms, so that he might become the Word made flesh, so that he might become the fullness of the Godhead bodily, so that he might be the glory of God and the exact impression of his person, so that he might be that. Not so that it might be made inevitable that he should be that, but so that he might be made that. And he was that by the subjection of his will. By the total subjection of his will with the help that he received from his father by being exempted from the uncontrolled subjection to unrighteousness that all of us have. And that's an absolutely marvellous story, brothers and sisters. Don't try to find out the mechanics. We can't find out the mechanics. Who is to say what God did or what he did not do? Who would dare say that, brothers and sisters? But God did it. Because the whole work is the work of God. And if we could actually explain the mechanical means of it, where would faith be? It's faith in the operation of God, brothers and sisters, that makes us acceptable to him. And so when we come over to James again in chapter 2 and we've had a picture presented before us of the Lord of glory, the Lord of glory, brothers and sisters, and we see the tremendous chasm that is between him and us because of sins, because of iniquities, because of transgressions, not because of the stuff of which he has made and the feelings of weakness that he experienced every day by having a frame exactly like us. He's in no sympathy with sin, brethren and sisters. As our brother Tony said, there was absolutely to be no compromise whatsoever with the serpent in any way, shape or form. And if this man was in sympathy with sin, he's compromised with the serpent. He's got sympathy for weakness. He understands our weakness. He's gone through our weakness. He has suffered the most ignominious death that ever there was. Shame and ignominy was heaped upon him. Ridicule and taunt, one after another. He's experienced all that, but he's got no sympathy for sin. <coughs> he wouldn't be a representative of his father if he was sympathetic to sin. 
That's why it was so necessary that a way of forgiveness must be worked. And so when we read, brothers and sisters, in chapter 2 of James and at verse 1, we have just begun to see a little bit of an insight into the Lord of glory. We've been taken right into the most holy place of the tabernacle in its typical meaning and we have seen the Shekinah glory as it dwelt in a man like us. And now he says, come out again and we're going to go to the meeting together. And I want you to know that when you go to the meeting, you will remember that vision. You will remember that you must have the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. You must have exactly the same kind of the faith of Jesus Christ. Because if we don't, we're none of his. We may have it, brethren and sisters, in a very small amount. He had it in an extremely large amount because he was given a capacity to have it in an extremely large amount. We may only have it in a small amount, but it's got to be the same. Have therefore not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect to person. So when you go to the meeting, he says, look at what can happen. We can walk straight away from a consideration of the things that are in the most holy place and straight away there's a dichotomy in the way we think. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that terrible? That we should say to the man with the gold ring, come up to the front seat. And to a man that looks a little bit shabby in appearance, oh, you can sit down the back. And straight away, brothers and sisters, even though we have got this vision of the Lord of glory, we act in a divisive way. And we use, what James says? We use evil thoughts. We use evil thoughts. We are not the judges of evil thoughts. We judge with evil thoughts, he says. And the pattern which we must operate upon is the pattern of God himself who has no respect of persons, who doesn't deal in duality of intention, who doesn't make one fish and one fowl when all other things are equal. But brethren and sisters, though we are forbidden to operate on the basis of respect of persons, that's of the flesh. But respect of character is divine. Because there will only ever be one character in the kingdom of God. And it doesn't matter how many people there will be there, every one of them will be stamped and sealed with one character. And it's the character of the eternal one. That's what God manifestation is all about. Because everybody is going to be an extension of him, aren't they? And it's going to be because we have laboured in this present world in the difficulties that we face and we have striven to manifest a character. And it won't be a character of our choosing, it will be a character that is formed upon the instructions and the edification of this word. There will only ever be one character in the kingdom of God and it will be the glory of God and it will be the glory of God into the future as well 
manifested through an immortal body, not a mortal one as we endeavour to do today. And so the great exhortation to us, brothers and sisters, is what Peter learned, isn't it, in chapter 10 of the Acts. When a great sheet was let down before him and there were all manner of four-footed beasts in there and he was told to arise and kill and eat. And there weren't only unclean animals in that, in that sheet, there were clean ones as well. But so far as Peter was concerned, they were all contaminated by contact with one another. And Peter was told to arise and slay and eat and he said, no, not so, I've never let anything come into my body that's common or unclean. And Peter learned that he was to understand that God is no respecter of nations, of peoples, but he is a respecter of character because in every nation those that fear him and work righteousness are accepted with him. And so, brothers and sisters, we're going to come over to the end section of James chapter 2 because we want to see this morning the basis upon which we are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 19. Thou believest that there is one God? Well, says James, that's a good thing. The demons believe that and they're fearful. They tremble about it. And what James is doing, brethren and sisters, is not belittling a belief in one God. But he's saying, you can talk all you like about one God. But if there's a dichotomy, if we're partial, if we do things on the basis of evil thinking, so what if we believe in one God? Where has it really got us? And then he says in verse 20, But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered up Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? Brethren and sisters, now we're going to see the words of James as under the inspiration of God he leads us through what we are going to say are the three stages of righteousness in the life of a believer. And the first one is, if we go back to Genesis chapter 15, <coughs> because that's where these words are taken from, and Genesis chapter 22, as we'll see in a moment, the difficulty is that David and Job and men like him saw, brothers and sisters, was that there's only one basis upon which God can really be approached. And that one basis is total sinlessness in the negative direction and total righteousness in the positive direction. Now we make a distinction between those because a little babe when it is born from its mother's womb, we would hardly say it's unrighteous and we would hardly say it's a sinner. But it has at that stage of its life what we, should, what we could describe as the negative quality of total sinlessness but we could certainly not describe it as totally righteous. It's done nothing. And righteousness is a doing word. 
So the difficulty now is, how is a mortal man going to be made just with God? How is he going to be justified in the sight of God when God is so pure and holy and righteous and man is anything but that? How can God invite that relationship together again on the basis of no compromise with the serpent? Well, that was why he had to make the Lord Jesus Christ in the way he made him. And he had to make an alteration in that man that he made him different from us so that that could be attained. Because in us it can't be attained. So now we come back into Genesis chapter 15 and this is at a fairly mature stage in Abram's learning and revelation of the promises of God. In chapter 15 and at verse 4 the word of Yahweh came unto Abram saying This shall not be thine heir but one that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And so, brothers and sisters, we are being taken on a little journey of faith in the life of Abraham. So God brings him forth in verse 5, the angel that was conducting this, and I might just draw your attention to the fact, brothers and sisters, that in verse 2, it just happens to be that the first occurrence of Adonai Yahweh is there. A really remarkable connection with the second of Samuel chapter 7. And so the angel brings him out, abroad out of the tent and he says, now have a look up at the sky, Abram. And Abram looks up at the sky and he's invited that if he can number the stars of the sky, so shall thy seed be. Now here's an old man, brothers and sisters, who's just been told that an heir is going to issue forth out of his bowels. And he hasn't yet had a son. And his wife is too old to have a son and she's barren into the bargain. And he looks up at the stars of the sky and the angel says, Thy seed, Abram, is going to be as numerous as those stars. And Abram instantly said, I accept that. Could you do that, brother? Would you have that kind of magnanimous belief in the word of God that at a word you would believe that out of your bowels having a barren wife is going to come that many seed? And it is testified, verse 6, and he believed in Yahweh. He didn't just believe Yahweh, he believed in Yahweh. He believed, brothers and sisters, that despite all the facts of life, God could and would and was going to do what he said. And that calls on a marvellous draft of what we very glibly call sometimes faith. And God says, and it goes on to say in verse 6, that he believed in Yahweh and Yahweh counted it to him for righteousness. And what is righteousness? Well, brethren and sisters, there's no grades of righteousness. Righteousness. 
it's either righteousness or it's the opposite. It's either total or it's nothing. Abraham believed in Yahweh and he counted it to him for righteousness. This is what he said, brothers and sisters. God said, I know that you are totally incapable of rendering righteousness. I know that's an impossibility. So therefore, in view of the fact that I know that this is impossible, I will bring to bear another equation which I will accept on the basis of something that is impossible. Because the only way I can ever deal with you, Abram, is to see you as a perfectly righteous man. I can't deal with anybody else. So because your faith is so great in me that I can accomplish what I have said, I am prepared to accept you as a righteous man. Brothers and sisters, today, and I don't even know how to work this machine so I'm not going to use it, Brother John has been kind enough to type up some little illustrations out of the 1894 Christadelphian which I would urge you all to get. I know you can't get a copy of it but get a copy of the articles to which we're going to refer. Because back in the days of Brother Roberts in 1894 there was another brother around called J.J. Andrew. And this is what J.J. Andrew taught. He said, well, we are all born under the condemnation of the guilt of Adam's sin. So when we're born, God imputes to us the sin of Adam. Brothers and sisters, there's only one logical way of overcoming that and that is by imputing the righteousness of Christ to us. And because his first premise is wrong, his second one is as well. It is not a matter, brethren and sisters, of God imputing to us the righteousness of Christ because of our faith. If we had imputed to us the righteousness of Christ, wouldn't we be home and hosed? Would we have to worry anymore? It's a matter, brethren and sisters, of our faith being imputed to us for righteousness. And it's faith in the operation of God who brought a man from the womb of a woman and who dwelt in him all the days of his 33 and a half years and asked of him something that he's never asked of any other man and took him into the article of death by violent death, which he didn't deserve and which is not our natural inheritance in Adam. It's something over and above that. It was the command of his father that that's the way he should die. Who took him through the grave because he cried, leave me not in the grave because thy years are throughout all generations. And he was heard in that he feared and he took him up out of the grave again and he raised him up to his right hand. And God did all those things, brethren and sisters, so that, what has Brother Tony been talking to us this morning about? So that the very purpose which Christ said 
to John the Baptist at his baptism, thus it becometh us to fulfil all righteousness. Jesus was not talking about John and him. He was talking about his father and himself. This is the way, John, that my father and I are going to fulfil all righteousness. And when he died, what happened? The veil of the temple, his flesh, was the very thing through which an entrance into the holy place was made. And our faith in those operations, brethren and sisters, are going to be counted to us for righteousness. (coughs) It's just as big a draft as an old man like Abraham being told that his seed are going to be as numerous as the stars when as yet he had no child. It's the same kind of faith. And while it may not have operated in exactly the same way, we don't have to believe that, but we must have faith in the operation of God who raised our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead and who set him up far above all principle and power and might at his own right hand to enjoy joy for the time that he sits there and then to come back because his enemies are going to be made his footstool. And when we have faith in all those operations, brothers and sisters, God is prepared to treat us in the same way that he treated Christ. Not because we are given the righteousness of Christ, but because our faith in the operation of God allows us to share in the effects of that righteousness. And we can share in the effects of that righteousness because the effects of that righteousness, brethren and sisters, was the bursting open of heaven itself, was the laying a foundation upon which forgiveness of sins could be made and was the laying a foundation upon which life eternal can be granted at the appropriate time. But that's not all that James says about justification. Brethren and sisters, that's the first phase of righteousness in our life. When we at baptism come up out of the water, God says, I know this person isn't righteous, I know it's impossible for them to be righteous, but I will accept them as a righteous person because they believe me implicitly and they believe the right things about me implicitly. They understand my work in my son. And then when we come back into, into James chapter 2, it says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered up Isaac, his own son, upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by faith was made, by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled. Brothers and sisters, James has taken us now to Genesis chapter 22, the offering up of of Isaac. And he's actually saying that when God made a declaration over the head of Abram, when he believed that he was going to have a, a number of seed, the number of the stars, God didn't just make a declaration. He actually made a prophecy. And a prophecy is something, brethren and sisters, that needs to be fulfilled. 
And see what James says? And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And in Genesis chapter 22, James says that the statement of Genesis 15 verse 6 was a prophecy that was fulfilled in Genesis chapter 22. So the brethren and sisters, what God is saying in Genesis chapter 15 is this, that not only has this man got a faith that I will accept on the, because it's impossible for him to be righteous, but I want to make a prophecy about this man too. And I want to make a prophecy about this man that he will actually work works of righteousness and he was put to test in the most terrible way almost, something that would have made the father feel for something that was going to happen over 2,000 years hence. And the action of Abraham in taking the knife to his son, brethren and sisters, if God said this is a righteous man in Genesis chapter 15, was God right or not when Abram took the knife to his son? Whose righteousness was Abraham working? Who, brethren and sisters, was vindicated when Abram took the knife to his son? God had made a prophecy that this man will work the works of righteousness. And Abram, brethren and sisters, was very busily engaged through faith in weaving a garment, a garment about which the Lord Jesus Christ speaks in chapter 19 of Revelation where he says that the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. The fine linen is the righteousnesses, because it's in the plural, of the saints. And brothers and sisters, one thing is absolutely sure that without righteousness, our own, because it's been induced by the word of God, it's our own righteousness, just as it was Christ's glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. It's God's righteousness that is worked by individuals who are of faith and they want to obey the commandments. And they are the righteous works, brethren and sisters, that make that garment with which the saint is clothed. And though we are extremely deficient in the sense of it being total righteousness, it is our righteousness. And our righteousnesses, brethren and sisters, are not as filthy rags. Our righteousnesses are but not the righteousness as we work on the basis of faith in the word. That's our righteousness, but it's been induced by God. Our righteousnesses, when we boast, they're as filthy rags. They will never be accepted in the sight of God, but any work that is right, brothers and sisters, that is done for the glorification of God, is an extremely wonderful and desired action in the sight of our God. And he sees it 
as a little infant weaving something that the little infant wants to give to his mum and dad and it will light the eyes of his mum and dad. And it lights the eyes of our Father in heaven, brothers and sisters, whenever we work the works of the truth for the truth's sake and for the glory of God's sake. It delights him like nothing else will. And what he will do, and I can tell you, brothers and sisters, what you most of all want, you might think I'm boasting. I'm not boasting. I'm very, I'm very definite in this. I can tell you what you most want and it's to be right all the time. And today we can't be. But if we hunger and thirst after it, we will be filled. And the gift of righteousness, brethren and sisters, is going to be, that is, total righteousness, total sinlessness with a body that can't experience weakness and a, bo- and a mind that will never experience dichotomy because that's incorruptibility and immortality. Those things, brothers and sisters, are a gift of God that are based upon our desire for it and the showing of that desire for it in works of righteousness today. We are imputed to be faithful or to be righteous by our faith, stage one. We work the works of righteousness to the glorification of God, stage two, and he will give to us a mind and a body that knows no other course. And that's the promise of the scriptures, brothers and sisters. We might just have a look at one verse. It's in Galatians chapter 5. We're going to have a look at two verses. I'm sorry, Brother Ian, but we've got to take two minutes. Verse 5 of Galatians chapter 5, For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. You see, brothers and sisters, just as if we hunger and thirst after a good dinner on Sunday and we haven't had it until it's eaten, So we're hungering and thirsting after righteousness. We can't get it until the appropriate time. And so one last one in in chapter 24 of the Psalms. In Psalm 24. And we can see, brothers and sisters, that all the processes of justification by faith and works are all of them designed to vindicate the great majesty of the heavens. That's why Christ said, thus it becometh us to fulfil all righteousness. It was God who was going to be vindicated in his life. And in Psalm 24, who shall ascend into the hill of Yahweh or who shall stand in his holy place? Verse 3, he that hath clean hands and a pure heart who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from Yahweh. And what's it going to be? It's going to be a gift of righteousness from the Elohim of his salvation. And that gift of righteousness, brethren and sisters, is the gift of a body that knows no tears and sorrow and pain and above all, a mind that doesn't experience dichotomy anymore. It's a mind to which righteousness is as common and natural as our minds naturally go to the things of this world. And that is, brethren and sisters, the promise of God through the gospel 
that we might not just come out of the grave and be immortal beings, but that we might be immortal beings without any feeling whatsoever of sin anymore.